genre. Last season on Legacy Door. Do you know Harrison Bell? I mean, Harrison Reese, either one. He's four years older than me. Harrison grew up in a mansion in Kenwood. It was in his mother's family. His great-grandmother left it to her. Anyway, his dad died of a heart attack a few months back, and Harrison has been rooting around the mansion on weekends trying to help organize things. Harrison and I are confronting Dad tomorrow. I need someone else to know what we're doing. Too many people in this just disappear without telling their stories. Legacy Door, Episode 2.6, Challenge. Vanessa Dorn, 9.01 a.m. Vanessa decided to let rush hour pass before heading out, which gave her a chance to really freshen up and to put some makeup over her bruise. She had worked out various ways she might spend the day, but put off deciding between them until she could determine the exact status of the rental car. She walked down to it, now wearing a conservative dress. She got in the car, plopped her purse on the driver's seat, and looked around. The first thing she noticed was Dan's jacket, which she'd moved to the back the previous day. It had felt uncomfortably like a part of him then, but now he'd left it, like he'd left her. But the bigger shock was on the back seat floor, his messenger bag. She gave it a quick check and, yes, notebook and laptop were still inside it. The previous morning when they'd had their chat and argument at her family home, he'd treated those things like they were vital extensions of his brain. But now he'd left them behind. More clues to save for later. She then checked the glove compartment and was pleased to see a copy of his rental agreement inside. Rented for the week the previous morning. Not due back until next Monday. Thanks for the loaner, Dan, she said out loud. If you want it back, you have my number. She turned on the ignition and reversed 90 degrees out of her spot, slowly, acclimating herself to the car's feel. Then she switched to drive and headed out. Her destination, she resolved, was Harrison Reese's funeral, which, she admitted to herself while she started the long drive south, she would probably have ducked if Dan was around, using her debriefing by him as an excuse to avoid the awkward scene. But now she was back, choice-wise, to where she'd been before Dan contacted her. The Reese's or the Strauss's? She felt that Abby's funeral would have been a more natural starting point, to renew acquaintance with her family and make further inquiries seem more casual. But its specifics had been a tightly controlled secret, with the intense press curiosity about intra-family murder providing a good reason, or excuse, to keep it buttoned up. Starting Saturday morning, Vanessa had called every mutual friend and acquaintance she and Abby had, but they'd all been frozen out. The best she could get was an awkward phone conversation on Monday, with Abby's older brother, Owen, at his office. Having used a questionable pretext to get the receptionist to transfer her, Vanessa simulated emotional hysteria at the prospect of missing the funeral of what she called her best friend in the whole world. He nervously told her that everything would be private, that he couldn't tell her where to send flowers, then apologized about a hundred times, all without lashing out or hanging up. In the end, it had been Vanessa who had given up and ended the call, which she now regretted doing. Harrison's funeral, on the other hand, was not secret, popular interest in his death being lessened by some combination of his color and his more distant relationship to his alleged killer. But it was still starkly described as family only. And while Vanessa could imagine them making an exception for a close friend, 
She was very daunted by the thought of thrusting her white face in there and claiming a close bond with a man she'd never met. You could have met him, said her inner critic, if you just listened to Abby. She would have introduced you. No beating yourself up, said her inner Dan. But even if she couldn't imagine getting in, the funeral was something actually happening, involving persons of interest at a place in time known to her, and Dan's departure had both robbed her of an excuse and given her an easy means of getting there. But she deeply wished she could spend the drive trading thoughts with him rather than stewing in her own. She tried throwing questions at herself. What kind of opposition was she up against? Why had Jonathan Strauss killed Harrison and Abby and then acted so indifferent about the consequences? Given what Abby had mentioned, Vanessa couldn't limit the possibilities to what was generally considered to be realistic, but she tried to isolate the impossible parts as much as she could. Vanessa's father wanted to live, and somebody, she'd say the logicians, had convinced him that they could make that happen. They were getting money from him as part of some sort of package. An interested party, human-looking but possibly not entirely human, was unhappy with the pace of things and threatened both Dan and Frank. Following which, Dan freaked out, hit her, and left, with some other things in between. And the non-human party had some sort of kinship or history with Harriet Reese. And perhaps with full-on cone-shaped non-humans Dan saw in his dreams. Vanessa couldn't dismiss the dreams. She returned to the first link in her chain of clues and went in a new direction. Harriet Reese, Frank Lutcher, and Jonathan Strauss had a shared past seemingly with both positive and negative interactions, but also somehow putting them all on the same side with the, okay, she'd call it an alien, in the transaction with her father. They were the club her father had always wanted to join. And marrying Vanessa's mother and fathering Vanessa had been early attempts to get in. And judging from the weird trust fund, she was somehow involved, at least secondarily. And all of this was happening while Julia was visiting colleges with Sandra, Graham studying at Duke, Kevin skiing in the mountains, and Vanessa, theoretically, back in Iowa. An empty house, where anything could happen unobserved. The only non-conspirator present being Dan, who Arthur wanted around. Why? Maybe, she thought, it was so Arthur could induct him into the conspiracy. Maybe he'd come up with the right combination of push and pull to accomplish just that which would mean not only that Dan was lost to her, but that almost nothing about her secret mission was secret anymore. But, she objected, Dan had left her the car. What could that mean? Was it a trick so they could track her movements, despite all her precautions? She'd already taken a chance on this score by using the SIM card in her iPad to get mobile internet, but she couldn't bring herself to turn it off. Was she supposed to out-conspire the conspiracy while scuttling from coffeehouse to coffeehouse looking for Wi-Fi? She shook her head, and with difficulty refocused on the subject at hand. If Dan's car wasn't a Trojan horse, maybe he'd left it to help her because it was something those who had threatened him didn't know about. She decided to grasp at that for now. She also decided to grab drive through and felt a passive-aggressive thrill minutes later to stuff the used wrappers in a bag and throw it on the car floor. She approached the funeral home. It wasn't what she'd expected, though she wasn't sure exactly what that would have been. Perhaps something gothic, like the one where the funerals for her mother and Dan's father were held. This one was a two-story orange brick box, set off from the buildings on all sides by pavement or grass. The look depressed her, 
but she saw that the fortress-like aspect had its advantages because the place was under siege. There was a lightly manned police line in front, meeting a deeper countering line of what had to be journalists of all stripes, most with cameras or phones at the ready, in case something visually interesting happened. Closer to the building, at all visible entrances, were large men in tasteful blue suits, probably private security. Near the front door stood one of them with a slighter, harried-looking man in a more expensive gray suit. Vanessa got out of the car and attempted to lose herself at the fringes of the gaggle of journalists. They predictably had claimed all the best vantages. By holding her tablet over her head, she managed to take a picture of the man in the gray suit. On display, she zoomed in and confirmed from her research photos that it was Christopher Reese, Harrison's younger brother. Vanessa guessed that he was there to vet people for the guards, and got confirmation when an older lady came up in a rascal power chair, and he first showed her in, then quickly reemerged. Vanessa didn't recognize the woman, but remembered that Harrison had a lot of extended family on his father's side. Watching Christopher resume his post made her think of Kevin, similarly ill at ease, on driveway greeter duty on Sunday. She wondered whether the youngest children got that duty because older guests liked to see them, or because they were the easiest to coerce into doing it. But she reminded herself, Kevin had been welcoming guests to his father's birthday, while with Christopher it was his brother's funeral. His brother's death had already happened before the birthday, the birthday of a man who might have helped cause that death. The two Mobius strips of incident wrapped around each other in her brain, and she couldn't tell for sure where they began, ended, or intersected. Bringing her mind back to practicalities, she now knew Christopher would be the one she'd have to fast-talk if she was going to brazen her way in. The question was how to play it. The various forays that came to mind turned her stomach. It was one thing to exploit a player like Justin Brandt. It was another to exploit whatever weakness she could find in a grieving man who reminded her of her little brother. But despite this, she began to consider the gambit of walking around the block and reapproaching the funeral home from the side the grievers seemed to be coming from. Then maybe she'd try confidence, or sadness, or sexiness, or perhaps the truth. The truth was the scariest idea, but held a strange appeal. Vanessa was rescued from her own thoughts by activity in front of her. A woman in a black dress who had emerged from the building a few moments earlier had finished a brief conversation with Christopher, and now she and he were walking towards Vanessa. Or so Ven's paranoia made her think. A moment's thought made her realize that they were approaching the reporters as a group. The reporters, in turn, closed ranks and raised lenses. Vanessa was unwilling to contend with professionals in a sharp elbow competition. She did not feel the need for another bruise. So she slipped back and around to the side before coming forward again. This gave her a reasonable profile of Christopher, looking strained but dignified, and an obstructed view of the woman. But even obstructed, she recognized Corva Reese, the middle child, born the same year as Vanessa and Dan, and looking like a more toned version of Harriet at that age, which was to say, very striking indeed. Corva Reese held her phone facing herself at waist level, like a cue card. After a quick perusal, she looked up and spoke to the reporters in a strong, very clear tone. She would occasionally refer back to the phone, but only during pauses. She came across like a debate champion, and Vanessa, having peer-judged a few debates, felt qualified to be impressed. Hello, my name is Corva Reese. Since you are all here at my brother Harrison's funeral, I would like to make a short statement on behalf of the family. First, for everyone who has sent us good wishes and prayers, we thank you. We regret that attendance at the ceremony had to be so limited, but 
My mother and the rest of us all feel your presence in there with us. Second, we would like to thank those police detectives and officers we have interacted with who are conducting the investigation into Harrison's murder. We have every confidence that they are pursuing this matter diligently with both professionalism and passion. Here, Corvarese's expression, already severe in giving praise, became much sharper. Third, however, I regret to say that I cannot express the same opinion of the handling of the prime suspect, Jonathan Strauss. Perhaps we would all like to live in a world where accused murderers are given private accommodations, ample resources, comforts, visits, and special meals. Perhaps that is what imprisonment should be like in an enlightened society. But it is not representative of imprisonment in our society. It is special, seemingly limited to those few powerful men who are called to account for their crimes. And that seems to be what is happening here. Then, fourth, it has become evident that Mr. Strauss intends to use his trial, a time and place where society should be determining his guilt for heinous acts, as a podium from which to deliver a screed, not to show remorse, not even to deny commission of the act, but to justify that act in terms that only the most hate-filled could stomach, and which would desecrate the memory of the lives he is accused of taking. Some, again, might say that this is how a trial should work, with defendants able to use it in whatever way they like. But again, look at our reality. This kind of freedom to speak seems restricted, given only to those powerful people who have rendered powerless people forever silent. Here, for the first time, it seemed like grief might overcome Corva, but she swallowed and spoke. We are not legal experts, and we are not penal experts. We are citizens, and we will be watching closely how our representatives and the public servants of our city deal with this matter. Thank you. Without another word, or even a visible breath, Corva turned and walked away from the police line. Christopher, after a moment's hesitation, did likewise, flinching at shouted questions from the reporters. Vanessa wanted to applaud. Corva Reese had characterized Jonathan Strauss as powerful rather than rich, and thereby sidestepped the affluence of his victims. She had expressed her position in compact, universal terms, challenging any rebutter to address the very present but unmentioned issue of race. Vanessa found the speech thrilling, important to society at large, and energizing to herself in particular. If a woman her own age could strike out so well at those who corrupted the world, maybe Vanessa could too. As Corva disappeared into the building and the press died down, thoughts of blackness and whiteness sent Vanessa's brain in an unexpected direction. She sifted her iPad's gallery for the pictures she'd found of the Reeses, focusing particularly on one of Harrison and his mother from his high school graduation. Her memory had been accurate. Harrison was lighter-skinned than the rest of the family. The difference wasn't dramatic, but it was consistent. She didn't know much about such things, and was sure there could be a lot of explanations involving recessive genes or natal conditions, but the part of her mind that could sniff out legacy issues was buzzing loudly. She remembered that Abby had called him Harrison Bell at first. So standing there in a crowd, browsing frantically on her tablet, she confirmed that Bell was Harriet's maiden name. And she'd been married in 1991, shortly after Harrison's birth. So... He might have been born Harrison Bell, and his name changed to Harrison Reese after the wedding. Vanessa began to breathe harder. 
She was walking a trail that Harrison had marked and Abby had followed. Van had been referring to her stepmother as Sandra ever since she started her quest. Maybe Harrison had also decided to cut through the BS and call people by their proper names, including himself. Vanessa retrieved the picture Dan had found, Frank Lutcher with Masked Woman, circa 1990, a Dan's father's restaurant, about a year before Harrison was born. She flipped back and forth between that picture, the graduation photo, and one of George Reese, Harriet's late husband. She guffawed at the absurd obviousness of it. Uncle Frank was Harrison's father. The laugh brought the attention of the reporters near her. Looking up, she saw that a pair of them appeared to be discussing her. She imagined them asking who she was and why she was standing there browsing like a crazy person. She was tempted to shout her news at them, but quickly decided the better course was to get out of there. She returned to Dan's car, got in, and watched the street show as she pondered. Dan's first clairvoyant dreams were of the prelude to Harrison's death. When those ended, the dreams of Frank had begun. Like he'd inherited them, Dan had said. Did that mean Frank was Dan's father, too? She twitched at the implications that had for her family's already questionable sexual ethics. No, wait, she thought, that wasn't necessary. The dreams were a legacy, and the guidelines from her trusts in estates law class came to mind. If Frank's only son died, childless, a family legacy would revert to Frank, then to Frank's parents, who were dead, followed by his siblings, likewise dead. After that would come his siblings' children. Frank's nephew and niece, Dan and Vanessa. And for patriarchal reasons, the brother's son might come out ahead of the sister's daughter, just like in her father's trust. There was a lot more to think about, but first she wanted to set a plan into motion. Justin Brandt had not gotten back to her about having dinner. Probably, she judged, his prudence had won out over his curiosity. That well of information seemed dry, unless she acted more overtly. And since she had little to lose by doing so, she did. Getting his cell number from his card, she texted from her temporary phone. Hey, counselor. Sorry to bug you, but you'll want to hear this. I don't know if you've seen what Corva Reese just said to the press, but it won't make your life any easier. And I've got information about her family. Lunch? Dinner? I promise to be on my best behavior. VD. She smiled at her own initials. Schoolmates had teased her about them for years until she decided to own them. She stuck around, she hurt you, she messed with your mind, but you couldn't stay away from her. She figured 50-50, either Brant blocked her forever or texted her back. Either way, she'd made her play. She got on her tablet and started making more thorough notes of everything. She wanted to get her thinking straight before she tried to explain it to someone else. Justin Brandt, 10.49 a.m. I wasn't going to meet with Strauss until the next day so I put the notebook in a blank manila folder and resolved to put Armory's offer out of my mind until I could sleep on it. With a lean towards no, because in that world, the rest of my work still had meaning and wasn't just a front for a life of highly lucrative, covert, whatever. So I cleared my mind and took some time for one of my pro bono bankruptcy cases, trying to figure out a way they could keep some money they'd been saving for their children's education. Concentration was already unusually hard because my brain kept drifting towards lunch. I came in early, remember? When three things happened in pretty quick succession. Number one, one of the Google alerts I'd set up for news pertinent to my various clients beeped. Number two, I resolved to ignore said beep until I figured out the education money problem. Number three, just as I'd gotten my bearing back, my phone pinged that I'd received a text message. 
With an audible curse, I gave up and looked at my phone. It said, Trouble. I shit you not, for a second I thought it was giving me a warning. But of course, it was just my address book name for our favorite girl of mystery. Asking me out for a meal. Am I against women asking guys out? Not at all. However, as a student of the worst places human interactions can go, I have more trust in people I initiate contact with than in those who initiate contact with me, regardless of gender. But on the other hand, I understand that if everyone had my attitude, there'd be no society, so I'm willing to play a hand I should fold every once in a while just to keep the game friendly. The name Corva Reese sounded vaguely familiar, but not enough to make sense of VD's message. Maybe you're thinking I should have figured her out from context, because Vanessa had mentioned her. But the Strauss case was something I brought up to her, not the other way around, remember? I didn't associate them with each other. I'm the babe in the woods here. So I turned to my computer to ask Mr. Google to refresh my recollection, and right there on my screen is the source of that first ping. A search alert for any news about the Strausses or the Reeses, which had found Corva Reese's funeral statement. Streaming video available, hot links for more articles about the Strauss-Reese murders, racist policing, and Chicago gun violence. I clicked the video. Two minutes and twelve seconds later, I was convinced that Strauss's little speech, whatever it contained, was going to be more of a headache than ever. I dashed off a note to Louise that we should expect press inquiries and adverse publicity. The fact that I got that sent so quickly, before Louise could send something on the subject to me, was a small victory. So I was now a little bit in Vanessa Dorn's debt. Far enough in debt to eat with her again? That took some weighing of factors. Pro. 1. The aforementioned debt. 2. The information she promised. 3. Potential for a new perspective on what this was all about, which was increasingly important now that I was being approached by well-dressed pen smugglers. 4. Getting to see her again. That had been enough in itself for the first meal, right? Con. One, she was apparently a liar. Some percentage of our interactions must have been some kind of put-on. Two, I hadn't been able to detect her lies. If someone's a better con artist than you, don't play con games with them. Three, if she was involved in the Strauss case, she could be more trouble than I'd ever imagined. Four, the potential amorous upside of this relationship had gone from elusive to non-existent. She'd as much as said so. On the other hand, that was a bit of a relief. In the vital center of this, I was back where I'd been when Cal Herndon showed me that representation agreement. Could I afford not to do it? Could I live with myself not knowing? Meeting her would probably mean breaking some rules. But then I was considering Armory's offer, which involved breaking the law while inside a jail, thereby saving the government the trouble of putting me in one. So, to talk with her again, one more time, without commitment? I had to risk that much? Lunch, I responded. Same place, same time. Let's get this over with. She sent me back the thumbs-up emoji. Kids... The Prisoner, some time later. The prisoner woke from a nightmare to find his waking body unfamiliar. He flexed his hands, but the fingers felt flabby and weak. And yet he knew these fingers. Had felt through them before. Perhaps those other fingers, 
the firm, strong ones, had been the dream. He opened his eyes but saw total darkness. Ethereal, shifting images swam in front of him, almost certainly the pure product of stress and imagination. All he heard was the pounding in his head. He tried to raise his arms, but they stopped short with a metallic click. Working them back and forth with a new click each time, he reached the limit of movement. He deduced that the entire arm was restrained by a sleeve it wore, which itself was clipped to something on each side of him. He flexed his feet and imagined that they moved. Wiggling his toes made him feel pretty sure that they wore thick socks. He tried to raise his legs as a whole and heard another pair of clicks. He felt frustration, but that feeling was far less immediate than the clammy fatigue which had enveloped him. With nothing solid to grasp onto, his consciousness began to slip, and he let it. Perhaps, he thought, if he closed his eyes, they might open upon a better world. You have been listening to Legacy Door, Episode 2.6, Challenge. Stacy Tappan was Vanessa Dorn. Song Marshall was Corva Reese. John Dre was Justin Brandt. And Jamie Wren was The Prisoner. The opening music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. The closing music is Loneliness by Melancholic Bird. You can hear more from both of them on Toontank. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana and Ash. This episode's cover image is Woman Doing Pose on Asphalt Road by Judeus Sampson. You can find more of his images on Unsplash. And here we are at the middle episode, with events in progress that cast earlier ones in a different light, as our characters will find in the next episode, Reconsideration. And as you reconsider the same events, you may find it helpful to check out the family trees and resources on our website, LegacyDoor.wordpress.com, or to post a question or comment on Twitter, Blue Sky, Mastodon, or Facebook. Or you could get the entire novel of past and future events from Amazon, or as an audiobook at Audible, among other places. This is one of the fine podcasts presented by Dueling Genre Productions. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, all rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Thanks for listening.